Righty church, if you have your Bibles, let's open those up to 2 Thessalonians, please. Uh, we're currently studying the New Testament epistles for those who are new with us. And my plan is to take these chronologically. So as they occur in the biblical timeline, that's how I want to look at them uh, so that they make sense. And if you look at it in chronological order, 1 Thessalonians comes first in the, time, in the biblical timeline. And then 2 Thessalonians comes shortly after. We're talking a couple of months after Paul sent the first letter to the Thessalonians we get the impression that he got a letter back from them or got some information back about how things were going with them. And so Paul wrote them a second letter uh, a few months later. And what we find is that in 2 Thessalonians, much of what was happening in 1 Thessalonians is still going on. And in, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul addressed intense persecution that was coming to the church from the Jews and the Gentiles from their city at this time, the Jews hate anything that has to do with Christ. If it involved the church in any way, shape, or form, we see them violently opposing this at every turn. We saw this during our study of the book of Matthew. A couple of years ago, we, we went through the gospel of Matthew and we saw how the Jews opposed Jesus during his ministry. It was clear that the Jews were opposing the church as we went through our study on the book of Acts. And one thing that we need to remember is that uh, while we look at these epistles, several, several of them occur during the events of the book of Acts. Uh, it's not all happening after what we see in Acts 1 through 28. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, and Romans all occur during the time frame that the book of Acts covers. All right? So when you would read Acts and when you see how Paul and his church planning crew are treated in these different places, it helps us understand uh, the circumstances that are happening for believers of this time. And everywhere they turn, they're being opposed by someone in the world. Uh, so it helps us to understand the, their struggles with the Jews. Uh, the church is also struggling with the issue uh, coming from the Gentiles in this area. Right? The people of Thessalonica, they hate that their friends and their loved ones are turning away from their way of life. Right? The Christians are no longer in the habit of worshiping false gods. They're no longer in the habit of participating in sexual immorality with temple prostitutes. Right? They're no longer acting as though the Roman emperor is divine because they believe that he was God uh, at that time. And when you hold these uh, sincerely held beliefs that these acts of worship are important, it's really easy to see how people can become agitated when they see people moving away from those things. Right? The church um, was... Doing that, by they, they're declaring outright, your emperor is a mere mortal. Right? He is the king, but he is not the king. Right? The church would have stated that that office that they are, they're trying to honor the office, but not worship the person that is in that office. The church would have declared that the, the sexual relationships uh, were not meant to be used in pagan worship practices and it's sinful to engage in any sexual activity outside of the parameters that uh, fall between one man and one woman in a marital relationship right so 
when you start pulling people out of those acts of worship, it becomes problematic for those who think that this is necessary to worship the gods to keep them happy. Right? And then on top of all of that, the church, as they're established in all of these places, the economy of those places are drastically changed because those who believe in Christ are no longer participating in idol worship. So they're no longer buying the, the idols that are being created by the craftsmen and the artisans in those areas. They're no longer buying food to sacrifice to those idols. And these are significant areas of revenue. And so this is completely changing the economic landscape of these places. And so this is going to upset those who are, who are impacted by this drastic change, right? You start seeing a lot of money coming out of your bank account, then you're going to be upset at the circumstances that cause that to happen. And so, and this is what is happening in this uh, in this area in Thessalonica, and we're going to see Paul is still addressing these persecution issues. Right? It's still happening. He's going to answer in Second Thessalonians. He's answering more questions about the end times. Right? Remember, we said throughout First Thessalonians that this is a group of people that is infatuated with the second coming of Christ. They're infatuated with Judgment Day. And so uh, there are more questions that came to Paul in the meantime, in, in the time in between. And so he's going to address that briefly in Second Thessalonians. And he's going to say more about the believers who were called out initially because they were acting uh, in an idle fashion. Like they're not working the way that they need to work. And so Paul in 2 Thessalonians is also going to call them out because apparently this trend has continued. They're still not working the way that they need to work. And so we're going to see all of that. So he's really just kind of rehashing and diving deeper into some of these issues that were apparent in 1 Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians. Uh, so let's pray and we'll dive into 2 Thessalonians. Father, we're grateful for the word that you have given to us. We're grateful that we can lean on it. We can make it a firm foundation in our life. We know that we can trust it with every aspect of our life. We can trust every aspect of your word. And I pray that we would line up our lives with what we see there. That we would change whatever aspect of our lives doesn't line up with your word. And as we seek your will, Lord, I pray that we would know that we can find it specifically and clearly in your word. I ask that in your son's precious name this morning. Amen. So we're going to start off. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. Uh, and then we're going to dive into that just for a little bit here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we see this, this is a typical opening of Paul. If you look through Paul's letters to the churches, this is fairly common. Uh, so it's really easy for us to just run right past this and not see the significance of what Paul says here. Now, last week I talked about implicit and explicit meanings of texts. And an implicit meaning is something that we can find in there, but it's not the main point. An explicit text is the, the main idea that the text is about. And so what we're looking at here, and something I just didn't want to glance over, is an implicit meaning in this text. And it says there that the church is in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ because of the grace of God which brought peace with God. And so one of the things that I want to make very clear this morning is that we cannot be in 
God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ if we have sin in our lives. Right? If we have sin in our lives, then it, it separates us from God on a very basic fundamental level. God is holy, God is righteous, and sin cannot exist in, its, in His presence without being destroyed. And sin brings, we see in Scripture that it brings wrath, it brings condemnation from this God who is holy and righteous. And when we think about that, it should make all of us go, uh-oh. But every single one of us have sinned and fallen from the grace of God. Every single one of us is constantly continuing in sin on a regular basis. And we see in Scripture that this makes it impossible for us to be in relationship with God. And so we should be asking the question, what do we do? And Isaiah 64, 6 says there's nothing that we can do. Isaiah 64, 6 says all of us have become like something unclean and all of our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. And so on the best day of our life, on the most holy day that you have ever existed, the best we can offer God is a soiled garment. That's the best gift that you have to offer the Lord when you do it the best that you possibly can. All right, and this is where the grace of God comes into play. This is where it is so necessary for us to have a solid understanding of what grace means. Grace is receiving something that you don't deserve. And on the flip side of that, if we, we often use grace and mercy interchangeably, but grace is receiving what you don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what you do deserve. So like, let's say one of my kids acts out. Mercy is, not them, getting, is them not getting in trouble. Grace is them getting something instead of getting in trouble. Right? So instead of getting time out, they get video game time. That makes sense? All right, so God is not only holy, righteous, and just. Those are parts of His nature, parts of His character, but He is also loving, kind, merciful, and gracious to us. Right, so knowing that we couldn't do anything to restore our relationship with Him through our own efforts, He took steps to make a way back to Him because He knew that we couldn't do it on our own. Right, so he, he offers up a way to satisfy His justice. He can't just overwrite sin. He can't just be like, it's okay, don't worry about it. And so He makes a way to satisfy His justice. He makes a way for His wrath and His condemnation to be taken care of while offering up us offering us up the gift of salvation. All right, so he sends Jesus to earth as a man in order to fulfill the law on our behalf. Everything that we were expected to do that we could not do, Jesus did it for us. He lived a perfect life, the life that we were expected to live. And then Jesus goes to the cross to take our place as an atoning sacrifice. Right, the cross was bad enough. The cross was brutal. It was one of the most uh, painful ways to die that you could even come up with. But that wasn't the worst part of Jesus going to death on our behalf. The worst part was enduring God's wrath for us. So imagine, if you will, a perfect relationship. A relationship that has never been broken. A relationship that has gone on from eternity past. And all of a sudden, all the weight 
of sin and rebellion, all the wrath, the condemnation that we deserve was placed on the shoulders of Jesus. And because God cannot be in the presence of sin, He has to turn His face away from His Son who has perfect relationship for eternity. And Christ can't bear it. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That relationship is broken for the first time ever in, in existence. And Jesus dies taking on, having consumed all of that wrath for us. And then Jesus conquers sin and death through his resurrection. Three days later, after going into the grave, Jesus returns to life. Uh, I think it was Levi who once said that he alived again. Uh, when we asked what happened to Jesus after three days, and Levi said, he alived again. We know that his sacrifice was acceptable because he came back from the dead. We know that sin and death are conquered because he came back from the dead. The resurrection is how we know for a fact that the price has been paid for all those who will put their faith and trust into Jesus for salvation. And now the free gift of salvation is available and offered to anyone who will receive it. Salvation uh, through Jesus is the only way to know and experience true peace in this life and in death. Right? So for Paul to look at this church and say grace and peace to you, it only comes through Jesus. Right? So I wanted to address that because we can easily run right past that. And that's probably one of the most beautiful things that we find in this letter if we don't slow down long enough to read it. So let's continue on reading from here. Verse 3 to 12. Paul says, We ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so since your faith is flourishing and the love each one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. It is clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom, for which you are also, also are suffering, since it is just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted along with us. This will take place at the revelation of the Lord Jesus from heaven and his powerful, with his powerful angels when he takes vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will pay the penalty of eternal destruction from the Lord's presence and from the, his glorious strength on that day when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at by all those who have believed because your testimony among you was believed. In view of this, we always pray for you that our God will make you worthy of his calling and by his power fulfill your every desire to do good and your work produced by faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified by you and you by him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here we see in these in verses 3 to 12, Paul is very proud of this church. We saw it throughout 1 Thessalonians. That has not changed Paul acknowledges in verse 3 that they are constantly, him and his church planning buddies, they're always giving thanks to God for them because their faith is flourishing and their love for one another is growing. Now, there's nothing more exciting for a church leader than seeing the people that they love, the people that they labor for, growing in their faith. And we see from that effort of them growing in their faith, we see them loving one another well. 
There's nothing more exciting than that. We see faith growing. We see people going out, sharing that faith. We see uh, the evidence of that is where there's need. People are serving and helping. And it's proof that each one of these people are being sanctified into the image of Christ. Right? It's proof that they're becoming more and more like Jesus. Right? It's also proof that their faith is real. Right? Real faith will have evidence of growth. It, it has to. It, it can't help it because the Holy Spirit is the one that sanctifies us. And so if we are connected with the Holy Spirit, we will inevitably grow. We will inevitably become more like Christ. If there is no growth, then there is no faith. And the growth that Paul has heard about makes him boast about the Thessalonians to the other churches that he's working with. Uh, we see in Acts chapter 17, this is where he begins this process with the Thessalonians. And so as he goes from there and as he's working with these other churches and as he's in communication with these other churches, the Thessalonian church is, is one that he's really, really proud of. After only spending three weeks with them, they're, they're flourishing, they're growing in their faith. They're the talk of the town, so to speak. He boasts to the other churches about their perseverance. He, he boasts about their faith that's remaining firm through all the persecutions and afflictions that they've been facing. And this enduring faith, this enduring uh, growth and the love that they have for one another, it's evidence that their salvation is real. Right? The reason for that is that persecution, pressure, and trials, they always reveal the genuineness of your faith. Always. Right? You see who you really are when you're put under pressure. You get to see what you really believe when you struggle. You get to see what, who, what you really are. I, I use in counseling, I'll, I'll take a cup like this and I'll say, if I spin this like this, Right, coffee is in this cup, by the way. If I spin this and shake it really, really hard and coffee spills out, why did coffee spill out? And they inevitably say, because you shook it. And that's not true. Because if water was in this cup and I shook it, water would have come out of the cup. What comes out of the cup is what is in the cup, no matter what I do to it. And so when you are in faith, when you are put under pressure, when you are shaken, in your circumstances, what comes out of you is Christ. And when you are tapped into yourself, when you are living out of uh, reliance on your own effort, what comes out of you is you. Right? Like, so that defeats everything where, where we say, well, I did that because you made me angry. No, you did that because someone presented you with an opportunity to be angry and you acted on it. Right? In the same way, in the same circumstances, someone else may fa face the same issue and Christ comes out. And it just depends on what we are tapped into in that moment. Right? Pressure, persecution, trials, they always reveal the genuineness of your faith. They always reveal what you are leaning on in that moment. We see this, uh, Christ talks about this very specifically in the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. And this is one of the things that we talked about during our uh, evening Bible study. Um, in the parable of the sower, we see that there are four different types of soil that the seeds fall on, two of which sprout up, but there's no root to them. And the things of the world uh, distract and, and take away and kill the seed. 
You've got one where it's the wealth and the riches of the world kill out the seed. The second is where you've got the, the plant sprouts up, but the heat, the trouble, the persecution kills that. And so we see very clearly there that if you're not rooted in Christ, then you're not going to persevere. You're not going to endure. Right? We also see evidence of this in the first chapters of the book of Job. Right? I don't know if you've read the book of Job, but we see there this conversation that starts off between God and Satan. Man, God presents Job to Satan and says, have you considered my servant Job? He is a holy man. He's a righteous man. He loves me above all things in his life. And Satan looks at him and says, of course he does. You have blessed him in every single thing that you have ever given him. Nothing can touch him because you have put a hand of protection over him. And God says, fine. He says, you can do whatever you want, just don't touch the man himself. And so Satan goes and he kills all of his children. He removes all of his wealth. And Job falls to the ground and said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then we see this interaction between God and Satan again. And God says, see, I told you. And Satan says, yes, of course he is willing to say that because you didn't let me touch him at all. A man will do whatever it takes to save his own skin, though. And God says, okay, fine. He says, you can do whatever you want, just don't kill him. And the next thing we see is that Job is plagued with boils, painful boils that last. We're not told how long they last, but he's sitting with covering himself with dust and he's scraping himself with broken pots just to try to get a little bit of relief. And so Job has lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He's lost his health. The only thing he's left with is a cantankerous wife and terrible friends. And yeah, when the pressure is on, Job begins to waver a little bit. He wants to have a conversation with God. He wants to see what's going on. Like, I want to face the judge. I want him to understand that this isn't fair. And God shows up at the end and goes, who are you to question me? But in all of that, Job never lost his faith. He lost everything else, but he never loses his faith. And at the end of all of that, Job is restored. His wealth is restored. He has more children. He sings praises to the Lord. In all of that, though, like we get to see a genuineness of his faith. Now, if our faith is not genuine, we will not persevere in that. And that's one of the reasons why we can have a pretty good idea that everything that the disciples said about Jesus is true. Right? Because you're not going to hold on to a lie. You're not going to endure all that the, the disciples had to endure for something you know isn't true. And every one of them except for one died a martyr's death claiming, professing the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. We see the reality of what we believe and how we endure persecution, pressure, and trials. And Paul says in verse 5 that the church's endurance of suffering is proof that they are worthy of being counted as part of God's kingdom. They're worthy of being counted as part of God's kingdom. Now to be clear, it's the Holy Spirit that is holding them steady. Right again, we are weak people. We are broken people. We are sinful people. Just because we have come to faith in Christ doesn't mean that all of this stuff stops. 
It's still something that we struggle with. We don't have it in us to endure these types of, of pressure, these types of trials on our own without God's help. And so when it says that you are considered worthy of being considered part of God's kingdom, that worthiness can only be attributed to God. Now you can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You cannot be good enough to be considered worthy for the kingdom of God. There's nothing in us that is good and worthy except for Christ. But their endurance shows the reality of their faith. It shows that God is holding on to them, showing that they are worthy of being considered part of God's kingdom. And then as we continue on there, we see in verses 6 through 9 that Paul offers some consolation to the church in Thessalonica with the promise that there will be retribution for all the trials that they've experienced. Now we can, we can rest in the knowledge that we don't have to be the ones to fight for what is right. We don't have to be the ones to fight for justice because God is going to take care of all of the justice that is needed at the end, at the judgment, all those who are opposed the people of God will experience what Paul calls affliction in verse 6. That's probably the nicest way that he could have put this. He says you're, they're going to suffer affliction. And then he gets into some scary parts. Right? That affliction comes in the form of God's vengeance with flaming fire on those who don't know God and on those who don't obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. The penalty for their rebellion, the penalty for their persecution of the church, their penalty for making sure that they don't follow God in any way, shape, or form, the penalty for that is eternal destruction and separation from God forever. Now, the idea of that, even in the face of enduring this persecution, should be brokenness in us. Now, we have done nothing to warrant our salvation. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that has opened our eyes to the truth of how sinful we are, how broken we are, and how much we need Jesus. And these are people who are blinded to the truth. These are people who are acting out of, of their own sinful nature. And yes, while they are held accountable for the choices that they make, we should be broken because of what is waiting for them when they die or when Christ returns. When we think about the idea of God's vengeance, when we think about the idea of this flaming sword, when we think about eternal destruction, eternal separation from God, it should break us. We should be praying for these people. When you've got someone in your life who is opposing you, they're opposing God, they're shaking their fists at the heavens and they're making your life miserable because of it. Yes, we, we, we should feel that and we should you know, desire for that to not be that way. But if we think about that on a different level, we should be broken for these people. This is why Jesus says that we should love our enemies. This is why we should turn the other cheek. This is why we should go the extra mile for these people. This is why we should bear the burden of the cross so that we can take this beautiful message of salvation, this beautiful message of healing to these people. One day, when Christ returns, 
Paul says here that he's going to be glorified by his church and we will marvel at him for eternity. And that's a beautiful, beautiful message for us. And we should cling to the promise of that in the hard times, in the dark times. But on the other side of that, we should also acknowledge and see what's coming for those who are opposed to the Lord. We should pray for these people. We should plead with these people. I believe it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who once said that if people be damned, make them jump over our bodies in order to work their way into hell. We should be clinging to their legs. We should be pleading with them to have their eyes open to see the truth. We need to be mindful of what's coming. Praise the Lord for what we get, but beg the Lord for their salvation, for what's coming for them. And with that in mind, Paul says that they always pray for these believers. They pray They pray that God will make them worthy of His calling and by His power, they will have every, de- every desire to do good and success in the work that they do through their faith. And so he's praying that, that every desire that you have for the kingdom of God will come true. He's praying that every effort that you put forward for the kingdom of God will be successful. How often do we pray that way? We often just pray for what we want. I just want my job to be easier. I want my kids to be more obedient. I want this relationship to go better. But what if we prayed that every one of our desires for the kingdom of God would be met? That we would be successful in every work that we put forth for the kingdom of God? What if we changed our prayers to look like that rather than just a list of desires that we want for this life to to go better, to be easier, to be more enjoyable for us. What if we prayed that way? And he also prays that the name of the Lord Jesus would be glorified in them. We need to live lives where if if we call on the name of Christ, if we tell people that we're Christians, that we should live a life that glorifies the Lord. And when we don't, we should repent in a way that glorifies the Lord. We are not perfect people just because we have come to faith. But we should be people that are well acquainted with forgiveness. We should be people that are well acquainted with repentance. And we should seek to glorify God in all of it. And when we have a good day or we bring honor and glory to God, praise the Lord. When we have a bad day, then we should bring honor and glory to God by repenting and seeking forgiveness from God and from those who we have sinned against. So my question to you here today is how are you doing with this? And are you in a moment of your life where you are struggling with some sort of persecution or trial? And as you endure that, what is coming out of you? Luke tells us in chapter 6 that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we can have a pretty good idea of what is what is inside by what comes out. We have a good idea of what is inside when we see what we do with the trial and tribulation that we experience. How are you doing? Are you tapped into your own heart or are you tapped into Christ for these responses? Are you in the process of growing in your faith? There is the, the Holy Spirit is in the process of making every single believer in Christ more and more like Jesus. 
And if we are at a moment where we see no growth in our life or there has never been any growth in our life, then we should be concerned. Are you growing in your faith? Are you growing in your love for one another? Do you look for opportunities to serve the church? Do you look for opportunities to be there for people when they're in these trials and tribulations? Do we even have the type of relationship where you, we would even know? Do you share that with us? Like, how can we be there for you if we don't have the type of relationship where you would even open the door and let us know these things? Are you growing in love? Are you looking for these opportunities? And if not, we have these several things in this passage that help us to understand that we've probably got something that we can work on. Or are you here today and for the first time you're realizing, you know, that grace that you were talking about, that peace that you were talking about, I don't have that at all. I don't have that at all. I'm realizing for the first time that God is holy and righteous and just. And if I were to die today, I would stand before him condemned and separated for eternity. If that's you here today, know that you have a beautiful, gracious gift in Jesus Christ. He did everything that is needed for you to be restored in that relationship with the Father. And all you have to do is repent of your sin and believe. The work is done. If, there's, if you're here and you're like, I don't even know what that looks like, then come talk to me after the service. I want to be here for you for that. And if there's anything else, if there's a trial or, or tribulation that you're going through that you have not let anybody else know, let me pray for you about that. I'm here for you. The church is here for you. So let us serve you well. Let us help you grow in your faith. Let us help love one another well. With that, let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for the love that you've given to us. I'm grateful for the grace that you have shown us in Christ and the peace that we can have. And I pray that we would be people who endure persecution and, the tr and trials that this life will inevitably send our way the way that the Thessalonians did. I pray that we can be a church that is boasted about because of our growth and our faith, because of the way that we love one another. And Lord, as if the world continues to turn against your church, the way that we endure the persecution that will come our way. But we can't do that without the work of the Holy Spirit. So I pray that we would cling to that and that the Spirit would pour himself out here in a way that brings revival, that brings uh, this desire to glorify you in all that we say, think, and do. Of course, in your son's precious name that I pray, amen.